You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The sight of a vintage VW bug dredged Juna Pearson from memory. Ladybug, Juna said into Celia's ear as casually as ever, as if this were not the first time that voice had been heard in twenty-one years. Downtown Chicago streamed around Celia in a blur of wingtips and pumps. She stared, seasick, at the gleam of a discarded foil wrapper. When Celia shut her eyes, Juna materialized behind her closed lids, the two of them sharing the back seat of Mrs. Pearson's Volvo, posting lookout for their favorite car. Ladybug, Juna called, and at the sound of that familiar, long-forgotten voice, a false wall crumbled to reveal a maze of other rooms, Juna standing at the center of each one. Juna Pearson had appeared at the desk in front of Celia on the first day of fifth grade, the new girl's dark ponytail tied back with ribbon, stray hairs feathering a slender nape like enameled porcelain. Juna had excellent posture, and for this, Celia decided to hate her. By the second week of school, they were friends of an intensity that summoned hangers-on. Their three most ardent satellites were Josie, Leanne and Becky, the best friend Juna had replaced. At any given moment, Juna and Celia were a party the others were desperate to attend, or a traffic accident too spectacular to avoid. Myla Goldberg is the author of Bee Season and Wicket's Remedy. Her new novel is A False Friend. Thank you for joining me, Myla. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Myla, are you a good liar? Um... Yeah, under the right conditions, I am a pretty good liar. I think that must help have helped you inform your your work on this novel, <laughs> since lies seem to form one of the central uh, threads that run through it. Yeah, yeah, lies or remembered lies. Mm-hmm. You know, as you read more, you begin to wonder. You don't know anymore. Well, this is a very interesting portrait too, of young girls. It sounds like we need to put girls between the ages of, say, 10 and 13 in charge of all of our uh, al-Qaeda prisoners. <laughs> oh, God. No, then the war crimes problems would be even higher, I'm afraid. <laughs> Talk about creating this society of women and of young girls and exploring that kind of casual cruelty. That's It seems so intense. And to the characters, and I'm guessing to, to girls, those kind of... Uh, memories, those kind of experiences stay with you a lifetime. Yeah, apparently they do because it was very easy for me to get back in touch with that time in my life. I mean, I'm a fiction writer, so I, you know, I have the luxury of not actually having to stick to what actually happened. And what happens in the book is a far greater scale than anything that happened to me. But the atmosphere of that age is very still palpable in my mind. I mean, basically, you know, at 10 and 11, you're really starting to try to form identity for the first time, I think. Um, And for girls, I think what that means is looking around you saying, oh, 
well, I am like that. Oh, and I'm not like that. And so the not like that, that's where exclusion begins and that's where cliques form. I think it's just sort of the announcement of self or of what you want yourself to be. But because at that age, you really don't have any conception of consequence or of other people for that matter, um, the way those sorts of self-definitions can happen can get pretty messy and cruel. Now, you have created your own little clique in this novel. Talk about uh, exploring these characters. And the main character is Celia, and we meet her some 21 years later when she experiences, as we heard in your reading, uh, a memory flash. Talk about that kind of, and this is the other thing that I think is very important to this book, is the, the concept of memory. And I think what's so interesting to me about when you have a book about memory is that reading itself is a very much a, an experience akin to memory. I think there's a lot of parallels to it. So when we read about people who are remembering things, it's a very natural uh, way to slip into a story. Sure, yeah. I mean, memory memory forms us. It is what we are. Um, and it's also completely unreliable, which um, is kind of this fascinating problem, <laughs> I think, that we have as people. And so that's what I was exploring in this book. Yeah, basically, as an adult in her 30s, Celia has a memory come back to her of this act of cruelty that she committed as a child or that she remembers committing as a child. And so she returns to try to, you know, make amends for this lie that she told about it. And um, it's it's a funny thing. Like, basically, she the clique that ends up forming with her and those girls is, I think, a phenomenon that happens with boys and girls. But you can meet a person who you really, really like, but you press all the wrong buttons for each other. And that is exactly what happens with Celia and Juna. They bring out the worst in each other. I mean, they're also, they're very, their friendship is real and their tie is very close and intense and in a way very lovely, but there's a darker side to it, which is what occurs with this clique of girls and what ends up happening. There's a, it's interesting the way you portray the friendship because there's so much competition and so much fighting in it. And it made me realize too, how important the ability to fight, to negotiate, to argue is to a really strong friendship or any kind of relationship. That's a, that's a key part is to being able to have a difference of opinion and hammer, scream, hissy fit it out. Yeah, yeah, it is a huge part of any friendship, although I think in these particular kinds of friendships, it can get to even larger proportions than normal. <laughs> yeah, competition at that age, at all ages, I think competition can be a very, very fierce component of any relationship. But I think at that age is when it first surfaces mm -hmm. as like a very real thing, because you're just starting to get old enough to know what you want and to know who has it. And so that's when you're like the, the kind of alpha behaviors that, you know, you see with, I think it happens with boys and girls, but with girls it manifests in this particularly emotional and psychological way with the cliques that it perhaps doesn't with boys at that age. Now, let's talk about one of the things I think that's really interesting in this book is uh, your storytelling style. It's, you do a lot of stuff with uh, bringing back memories and um, Celia's experience of the world is, a, is an experience of the past and the present all at once. And I think we all do that a lot, but I think that your, the way you've written this in the novel is really interesting. Talk about creating us that kind of time-splintered effect. Sure. I mean, while this is a novel that 
childhood figures very importantly in, I didn't want it to be a novel of flashbacks. Um, I want it to be a novel of an adult looking back upon childhood because that's a very different feeling. Mm -hmm. um, there's a sense of remove, like the older we get, the further we get from our childhood, and yet it still exists for us in this sort of um, denaturized way. And so that was really what I was trying to achieve with this book. I don't take us, you know, for, except in very, very small limited circumstances, we aren't back in the moment of childhood. We're more looking across the abyss of the years trying to recall and re-pull out threads from that experience. That's a really interesting observation because memory I itself is not a flashback. It's an examination, and that gets to the nature of memory in this book, which is complicated and pretty dangerous to yeah. our own uh, uh, self-identity. Yeah, and the interesting thing, memory is one of those just, there's a paucity of language in, in English to describe memory. We just have this one catch-all word, memory, when actually memory comes in so many different nuances and different types, and I really wish, you know, we had become more like the Eskimos who have zillions of words for white or snow with memory because there's the memory that's very intense actual like you're reliving something that happened and then there's memory which is just a kind of a vague barely even a scent of what it was and then there's a memory actually I read this in a dictionary of neologisms once re-memory which is the memory of a memory and so after a while you remember having done something not because you still remember having done it but you remember remembering it before and so you get these different stages of removal from past experience that I think is really interesting to explore. Well, it's interesting, too, in terms of a literary device to, to lay out the plot of this novel because it's a, it's a homeward journey. What Celia experienced has this ex memory experience and decides to uproot herself out of her life in Chicago, go back home, back east to her little suburb where she lived, lived with her parents. Talk about creating using memory as a, as a plotting point. Um, well, the neat thing, yeah, I mean, I wanted this to be a very suspenseful read. Mm -hmm. And a model for me with this was Ian McEwan, because I think he really knows how to lay out a book so that every page you're like, oh, man, i got to find out what happens next. And so using memory for that, it's all about the pacing of information and the mm -hmm. dissemination of information. And so I was trying to feed memory through this book and, and these small increments to just give you enough to make you hungry for the next thing but not to know too much. Um, which is often how our memories work. I mean, we'll remember one thing, and then that'll slowly grow and accrue, and we'll remember more and more until we have assembled a picture that we didn't have, you know, maybe the day before. And, and two, our memory is affected by hearing other people relate their memories in language, which then becomes our memory of hearing somebody else's memory. This is like a hall of mirrors. And so mm -hmm. talk about, too, creating um, the characters in this novel. Celia is our, is our main character. She's uh, living with her boyfriend, Huck, and they have two dogs and no kids and this is this is actually kind of part of the 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 point there it's very much a part no kids and no actual marriage mm -hmm. um although huck clearly wants both and um so basically when this story begins celia is in a place of stasis in her life she's being held back by forces that she probably doesn't understand until this book begins and it's really over the course of this book that i feel she does begin to understand and this memory that comes back to her 
to my mind, is what has been holding her back. She never examined what she did and what happened to her at that age, and that experience needs to be examined so that she can move forward, because it turns out that there's a lot of fear in her rooted with that experience, fear of her own capability, feel of what she has the potential to do that's been holding her back from, say, getting married or having kids, because there's a capacity for cruelty in her that she was unaware of for a while, and then being aware of it is terrifying. Talk about that kind of cruelty of, of children to children. It's very vicious and savage, and and it would be greatly applicable in in all our prison uh, war prisoner situations if it were uh, legal. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, well, so much. Some of the cruelty with children is very deliberate, mm-hmm. and some of it is only partially deliberate. I think it's really hard for a child at that age to know. They know when they're hurting somebody for sure, but I'm not sure they realize the huge repercussions sometimes of that. It's mostly centered in satisfying their own desires, um, and then what comes out of it. But yeah, children are very cruel. They will difference. Children are very, very attuned to difference, and it's the odd person out who will get the brunt of those observations. Now, um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is how powerful memories of cruelty are, both inflicting it and experiencing it. And I, I think that there's a kind of inverse. Uh, motion in this novel going back and forth with Celia because she is the inflictor of cruelty, but she's also on the receiving end, too. Yeah, she is. And that's, I think, a more fair portrait of all of us. And it it started with me because I was definitely picked on as a kid. And so I grew up with the identity of, oh, well, I was always the victim. But then I had this memory maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago of at least once having been the aggressor. I had thrown a pair of scissors at a friend of mine. I'd managed to block that out entirely. And then it came back to me. And that's kind of was the very small trivial seed for what becomes this novel. But it was that my own realization that I had been both the victim and the aggressor that really wanted me to explore both sides of that equation. Because I think all of us have an inner monster that has come out at least at one time or another in our lives. And then all of us certainly have been on the receiving end of something as well. Uh, I love that you mentioned monsters because, well, I'm a monster hound, but also (laughs) there's a great line in here where uh, Celia thinks for the rest of her life she might have enjoyed the illusion that she was no more monstrous than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the beginning of the crack of uh, the in her conscience that starts to undo her. Right, yeah. Now, one of the things you do in this book, which you set yourself a very difficult goal because you have to create a character who does not exist in the present, is not in the book essentially at all, but yet is the center point of the book. This is like making a book about nothing or, <laughs> or, or, or writing a book about you know a black hole or yeah. a negative space. Yeah, it's a book about an absence, the yes. absence of a person, um, <clears throat> which is why basically it's, the book, it's a book about a memory of a person who no longer exists. Although through that book, the center of this book, I think, does shift from a person who long, no longer exists to a person who still does. You know, as Celia goes back home and talks to all her friends, they're, and they're saying, you have nothing to forgive about with Juno, but there's this other girl who's still around that you very much have something to say you're sorry about. And that was the friend Leanne, who was this, the focal point of much of the bullying and picking on that their clique went on. You know, it's so interesting to, as we get some of the details of the bullying uh, that that happened, because, you know, as, as well, I'm a, I'm a man, so, <laughs> you know, on one hand, you know, men, we spit on one another, we hit one another, we kick one another, we punch one another, and intimidate one another, call one another out for fights. But women have a very, very different way, and I think it's it's actually worse. 
Perhaps. I mean, I think they're both terrible and they're just in different ways. Differently terrible is perhaps the best way to categorize it. But yeah, um, women go for the insides. It's like the inner bleeding as opposed to the outer bruising. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really, it, they, it's about insecurity, about picking on your, you know, your most, you know, insecure thoughts about yourself. And again, difference by really making you feel ashamed of difference and the ways that you might be different and making, playing to the idea that everyone wants to be part of a larger group and exclusion. Exclusion is a huge, huge tool that I think girls begin to wield at that age. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, the place that this takes place, uh, um, the city where she Jensenville. lived. Jensenville. Jensenville. Yeah. This is a great uh, picture of an American suburb in decline. So talk about creating that. Is this a, like a place where you grew up in? Um, it's not. It's actually where my husband grew up. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an imaginary town set in the very real environment of upstate New York as mm -hmm. it is in present day. And I've been visiting that area for the past 10 years visiting my in-laws. And um, the thing that's fascinating about it is it's kind of a place of fallen empire. You know, there was a time when America was a country that made stuff. And so a factory would then create a city and it would be a very vibrant city with culture and architecture and lots and lots of people and lots going on but then as America ceased to be a country that made stuff and the factories shut down these cities died and so upstate New York is a place of dead cities and um, you still have these beautiful buildings and these signs of the glory that once was but there's no people there anymore and there's very little culture there anymore and so it's this weird ghost town feeling and um, I didn't realize that I would sort of been taking notes for 10 years on this place until I started writing this book and I was setting it in this town I was like oh my goodness yeah and this is perfect because the neat thing for me about and I hadn't planned on this it's just kind of the back brain is a beautiful thing um, you know in the book at the the book talks a lot about the people we become and the people we once were, you know, the child we were and the adult we are now and those discrepancies. And this is a town where the same thing has happened. It's a different town now than the town it once was, and perhaps it used to be a better town than it once was. And so this is a town that has given up things as it has aged, just as many of the people in this novel have given up things as they has aged and become someone different. Well, it's interesting when you uh, talked about that. I just flashed on the idea that this town is a is a memory of what it once was. Yeah, it and, absolutely and, is. And that's a, and it's interesting to think that towns themselves and places have and in fact are memories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wish there was a national law that mandated little plaques to be beside the doorway of every establishment that kept track of everything it used to be. So, like 1989, Sal's Dry Cleaner; 1992, Marsh's Boutique, and just like have an obituary of like all the dead places that were once represented by this space. Uh, in Life in Hell by Matt Groening, he once once had a great cartoon called The Storefront of Doom, <laughs> which was all the different things. And that's one of the things I really loved was the, the visions of vinyl mm. um, scene in there because that's so evocative. And I love the way that you take us in and out of time and in and out of past and present experience Talk about uh, creating the language for that. This must have been a very difficult book to write. It's very crafty in the way you do that. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was hard. It's a short book, and it took me four and a half years to write. And then when you look at you know the amount of thickness of the book, and you think, four, this took her four and a half years? But yeah, it did. It was really hard. And part of it was what you mentioned before, writing about absence. I mean, there's a person that's not there, and there's a town that's not there. <laughs> and yet I need to evoke those very, very strongly in the reader's mind. Um, so, I mean, luckily, I have memories. I mean, it's for all of us, it's a very strong part of our lives. But I just remember my past, particularly my childhood, very, very vibrantly still. And so it was easier, perhaps, for me to 
call upon these things because memory is so accessible for me and I think about the past as often as I do. Do you think it's your uh, facility with memory is part of being a writer? It seems to me that they're very similar. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think, you know, introspection and looking back um, is a huge, huge part of being able to write because the present moment doesn't, you know, it went again, it went again, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's mostly composed of what we've already done. And so as a writer, I'm just keeping a constant like stockpile of all the events and all the people and all the conversations I've eavesdropped on. And like that becomes my little mental library when I'm writing. Well, too, memory itself is an act of language. And we remember not just in images, but in descriptions and in story. That memory is our, our memories essentially are stories we've told ourselves. And we form what are essentially random events and, and a series of conversations and things we do. We turn those from the random things they are into a story. And that's, I think, what one of the things that is interesting about this book is how we can tell ourselves stories that aren't quite true. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, we pick our own totems to find significance in and then spin stories around them and they may or may not correspond to anyone else's significant totems. I mean, and that's the other interesting thing about memory. Like we talked before about, you know, memories of being traumatized are, can be as strong or as damaging as memories of being the one who caused trauma. And yet, often what for you was like causing trauma to someone else, which was a big deal. That person might not even remember that particular event. I've talked with several, like the scissors thing that I was talking about. I actually tracked down this friend to apologize to them, and they have no memory of me ever throwing anything at them. And I've talked to other people who, when they were reading this book, they're like, yeah, there's this one time where I knocked over my brother's pile of comics, and I just remember his face utterly devastated because he'd spent organizing them all this time. The brother doesn't remember this. Um, and so it's really interesting the things that we pick out that for whatever reason resonate in our mind and kind of form the foundations for larger memories and larger decisions that we might make that have no significance to anyone else, including the people who might have been involved at the time. I guess that's because we're the ones making the decisions. And when we know we're doing something wrong or have made a mistake or just doing something evil, we, we know it. So our vision, our version of those events is informed by our motivations that are entirely invisible to anybody else. And even if somebody else does know, well, they knocked the book, stack comic books over on purpose, it doesn't ha- come with all the same kind of, you know, malefaction that you can bring to it when you're doing it yourself. Yeah, when you're doing it yourself, you're making a choice. And when you're having something done to you, you can shrug it off. That was not my fault. I had nothing to do with that. And so it perhaps makes a smaller mark, depending on the thing. You know, I, I love the, the portrait of the relationship between Huck and Celia. It's really nicely nuanced. And one of the things that's so great is that as we as readers experience Celia's life and we give us some a couple of chapters, not too many, but just the right number of things from Huck's point of view to provide a kind of a parallax view of the situation. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm wondering, did Huck, was Huck always a, a, a percipient in this novel or did he come in in a later time? Um, he, I think he always was a percipient in my mind because I always, 
it's Celia is basically an unreliable narrator. Mm. And so I really <laughs> wanted to give the reader some triangulation and mm. some perspective. And so Huck seemed a really great way to give the readers an angle on Celia that is outside of herself because so much of the book we are spending inside Celia. And because this book deals with basically it's the reader's job as they go through to figure out what happened and what really didn't, I think they necessarily had to get outside of Celia just a little bit to give them the tools so they would be able to do that by the book's end. Um, but yeah, their relationship, I, I really, the neat thing that I was trying to do, hopefully, with their relationship is I wanted to portray a deeply loving, very real relationship with all its flaws. Um, it's very much easier, I think, to just write about a dysfunctional relationship. Oh, you know, they're terrible for each other and this is horrible. Or just like a to kind of um, beatify a relationship by saying it's the perfect love. And so <laughs> I wanted to show a relationship that deeply, deeply loving relationship and yet deep, deep problems and not have the problems negate the love and not have the love gloss over the problems. And I think that's true, too, of, you know, Celia's relationships all around in that she's, when we enter the book from the get-go, she's, we, you know, the, the, the ice is cracked. So we know since the ice is cracked that everything, our foundations are are loose and shaky from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's and that's kind of what allows her to go back and allow new memories to come in. And it turns out that her own memory is maybe not as concrete as we thought. And as she talks to her friends, we're saying, that's not how I remember it. And I saw some stuff that basically, you know, this can't be true. And she's causing more and more to question her own memory of the event. And then I'm hoping that, you know, by the end, I've given you enough to be able to come down on a decision and to say, you know, well, this is what happened. Well, one of the things I think that's really interesting, too, about this book is your vision of going back to visit your old friends, because that's a, always a very problematic uh, uh, experience. So you do a great job of portraying that. Talk about creating that in prose it's one thing to to you know go back and you know shoot the breeze with your friends it's another to um create that experience for the reader well i mean i think we all experience a sort of weird time travel whenever we go home to visit our parents or whenever we go back to our hometown we revert i mean i just you can't help it you're going back in time to a place where an earlier self is much more dominant than the self you are now and it can't help but bleed through at least in my experience i find myself reverting to habits i was like wait i am so much older than why am i doing this and so it was really fun to be able to you know have that happening with Celia and the idea of, you know, you see your old friends and you remember what you used to do with those friends and sometimes you fall back into those patterns even when they bear no resemblance to what, you know, you do now or what you care about now and it's this weird time trap where time really does move backwards. You know, there's a kind of a, a scene in here with a portrait of Dorian Gray in reverse <laughs> where Huck is looking at, at Celia's old photographs and seeing the seeds of her present self in her past self. And we also kind of have that too because we meet all the friends in, you know, uh, Celia's memories and in, you know, her discussions of her memories. But then we also meet them in the present and it's very jarring. So talk about, I love this idea when the way you create characters is, again, very crafty and interesting and it's subtle because we see them at a very early point in their lives, and we see them in a much later point in their lives. And even though they can be very different, they seem 
that you've got a coherent character from beginning to end in our minds as readers. So talk about creating these characters who we see at you know, completely different times, yet um, making them the one person. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, and it came for me, like everyone knows in high school, there's the guy like, oh my God, he's going to be a movie star. He's so clearly going to be a success. And then 10 years later, you find out he's a podiatrist. And you're like, wait, what happened? And so, I, yeah, I mean. Podiatrists ain't bad. Yeah, no, <laughs> podiatrists ain't bad, but it's not a Hollywood movie star. They're just very different things. And so I think in particular, so many of us when we are young are artistic and we have artistic aspirations. Oh, I'm going to be a painter. Oh, I'm going to be a writer. And usually it falls away. And that depresses me enormously that, you know, all these creative impulses that are encouraged and that are fostered basically are, you know, fall away because of just the practicalities and the banalities of daily life that you are the demands of you, the exigencies of just having to exist as a grown-up and what you need to do. And so I wanted to show, you know, what that experience is like and just the the grown-ups that these children turn into. And yeah, they're very, I don't want to, not without giving anything away, each one of the friends that Celia tracks down is dramatically different than the girl that she had known. Um, and, you know, the through line, because I don't provide any middle, you just see glimpse, in, you know, from memories glimpse of 11-year-old to present-day glimpse of adult. Um, that's the neat thing about writing is I'm large and in charge, and you just have to trust me that this is the same person. And, you know, I, you know, physicality helps somewhat with that. And, um, you know, you're taking Celia's word for it. She's like, yep, these are the same people, so they must be. But, um, yeah, it's a fun thing to get away with. Well, a as a writer, did you take these people on the life journey from uh, – 11 to 32 in your mind before you wrote them up or did you just put A to L and, and go and, right. and try to figure out? I would say I probably did A to L with maybe C, F, and K, but like not necessarily <laughs> all the letters in between. But yeah, I definitely, I had to think about these people and think mm -hmm. about what they'd done. Some of that is, you know, you get in little sentences, maybe little bits and pieces of what they'd done, you know, between childhood and adulthood. But um, it's important um, to kind of fill in at least some of those in between moments as a writer. So you know that you're giving them a consistent through line and they will feel real and not too disconnected to the reader. You know, the tension in this book is very, very palpable and real, and it's very suspenseful up to literally the very, very last page. You're just going, what, 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 wait, 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 what's going to happen? So I want to ask you, um, when you started writing this book, did you have an idea of the overall plot map? Or was this just, or were you just writing a prose front wave going, oh my God, what am I going to do next? <laughs> oh my God. I had, I mean, usually what happens for me with a book is I'll have the beginning and a specific or non-specific but somewhat present sense of the ending and then a couple moments in between. And But I don't know everything. If I knew everything, I wouldn't bother to write it. And so the fun of writing is connecting those moments. One thing that happened that was interesting with this book is usually I do write linearly. I started the beginning, and in my mind I'll have a sense of what's going to come next, but I haven't actually done it. There were two chapters in this book, um, one where Celia is going to try to meet Leanne, and one where Celia goes to meet Mrs. Pearson. I wrote those two chapters very, very early on in the process. They were, they came to me fully formed. I knew exactly the kind of people these were. I knew exactly the kind of conversation I wanted to have happen. I didn't know where those chapters would be falling in the book, but I knew they'd be coming along somewhere. So I wrote them really early on and then wrote the rest. Kind of, they, they were sort of these lodestones that guided me through the process of writing the rest of it. And that was an interesting feeling. 
you know, this book hinges on the lies that these characters tell or think they tell. And I think that's a very interesting uh, perception of our lives because our, our memories lie to us all the time. Our memories are, are notoriously, as you say, unreliable. So I, I'd like you to talk about this confusion that happens when you tell a lie and the deliberate telling of lies and the non-deliberate telling of lies and how those two can be so easily confused. That's a really interesting perception that I've never really twigged to before. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, the more you say something, if you say something enough, it will become your truth. It will become your reality. And that's why I'm always fascinated by, you know, the people always talking about the validity or invalidity of a lie detector test. A pathological liar doesn't feel like they're lying, and that's why they can pass these lie detector tests. Their lies become their truth. They're not lying when they're telling you that their mother was a dog and they're from outer space. Like, they honestly believe that. And um, in a sense, we all have a bit of that in us. You know, I mean, I know that, you know, if, you know, when you're little, if your mother tells you something often enough, oh, no, no, you really did. You visited Uncle Charles two weeks ago. Don't you remember we did this and this and this? You can easily plant in a child the idea of something that happened. And then if they just repeat that to themselves, it becomes the visit to Uncle Charles. Even maybe that visit did not happen. And um, we make that sort of mistake. We make assumptions. And then those assumptions, as we repeat them, if there's nothing to controvert them, they can very easily just become our reality. And I like the idea of the consequences of lies. And in this book, they fall mainly upon the liars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think, I mean, you there's a price to be paid for everything. Consequence, yeah, is a huge, often, like, under-examined part of the actions that we take. Um, and yeah, Celia, I mean, it's interesting because Celia tells, what she, Celia remembers having told this lie, and then she confronts these friends. who's like, no, 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 but I saw this thing happen. It wasn't a lie. And then you're thinking, okay, well, did they actually see it happen? Or because it was presented to them as a truth, and then lots and lots of time passed, did they then embellish what they were told to make it become their truth? And that's a tension that does exist through at least part of the book, at least for the reader. And then hopefully as you read more, that tension is perhaps replaced with a different tension and dispelled, and you then you know get a fuller picture of what might have actually occurred. And it's interesting, too, the way you play with our sense of the characters in that characters who are and aren't present become more and more important and you kind of start to figure out wait you do a great job of misdirecting us i think <laughs> this is a this book is, a, is has a lot of sleight of hand and in fact yeah talk about misdirection in this book you have a lot of fun with that and you're good at it oh thanks yeah it's super duper fun um it's one of the best parts of plotting a book i think um because you want to i the, suspense was really at the heart of what i wanted to do with this book and suspense is largely about misdirection i mean if you go to any movie you know and you're trying to solve something they give you lots of red herrings along the way to keep you off the trail and um, so, yes, this was a very important element for me um, to try to string things along. And it's an important, I mean, Celia is misdirected. I mean, each of these characters is misdirected in their own way because of the way they're remembering something or the way that they're talking about it. So it just it was a natural fit. Well, what's interesting, too, is that it's such a, a novel of, of high tension and suspense, yet it has none of the normal aspects of a novel of high tension and suspense. I mean, it's not like there's some imminent danger threatening people. And, and so that's a 
peculiar decision on your part to write a novel of suspense that is devoid of all the elements of novels of the suspense. <laughs> well, I mean, most of the suspense, and this was kind of key, you you want to like, you like Celia, mm -hmm. I think. You know, my idea was you want to like this person, and yet then you learn that she has done a terrible thing. And so I think a lot of the suspense is created inside the reader, like, how can I like a person who might have done this bad thing? Did she actually do this bad thing? I need to know that because it's going to help me know how I'm supposed to feel about this character. And so I think it's possible to create suspense without car chases or, you know, weapons or running around. You can be a very internal suspense that's just playing with our affinities and not knowing who's the good guy here. Is there a good guy here? Is there such a thing as a good guy who's also sometimes a bad guy? And are we allowed to keep liking them, even though they might have been a bad guy at one point. And so that's where the suspense comes from. That's really, that's a unique approach. One of the things that I, I love the characters of her parents. I think you do a great job. And I, something that Warren thinks at one point or is that life becomes easier once you decide you don't have to know a damn thing about it. <laughs> I think that's a great parental approach. <laughs> yeah, it's a great older person approach. It's uh -huh. just like, I wash my hands. Forget it. <laughs> um, yeah, the parents, they're, that was another challenge, too, because they're a deeply loving people. They clearly love um, Celia, and they clearly love her brother, their son, Jeremy. But um, communication is a huge, huge problem for this family, and mm -hmm. talking about difficult things is not something they're very good at. And so in the case of what happened with Juna, they didn't really handle it in a way. I mean, part of the reason I think Celia has her trouble down the road is this was a forbidden topic. It happened, and then it was buried, and it was not discussed at all, which allowed Celia perhaps to push it aside in her mind because no one actually, when she was a child, helped her to confront what had happened and talked about it. And so her parents sort of helped her to bury it in her mind. Um, and they feel guilty for this. They realize that they are to some degree culpable in the difficulties that their adult daughter is having now, and yet it's still very difficult for them to talk about it, even knowing that. Um, and that's one of the, 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 the sad parts, the tragic aspects of this story. Uh, I love the, the portrait of family in this, in this novel. Um, talk about that the Jem, her, her brother Jeremy, has an entire novel happened to himself pretty much off stage. And, and it's interesting that the way you, you describe it, because uh, Celia's not there when it happens, and it informs a, a lot of, of the novel. So again, here's another thing that happens off stage, uh, another absence right. in, in this novel. This isn't a novel of, of what's not there. This is like the little man on the stair. <laughs> well, uh, actually, an author who is a big inspiration for me with kind of novels of absence is Ishiguro, because I think he's wonderful at writing around something. He gives you the edges of it, but he gives you enough of that that you're able to fill in the middle. And I really use that as a model for writing about Juna and writing about Jeremy. You know, um, um, the interesting thing I've always been interested with families is when you have siblings who have more than, say, one or two years spread between them, they can have entirely different experiences of that house and the family and the childhood, even though they were technically in the same place. And so that's what happens with Celia and Jeremy. Jeremy starts having troubles with drug addiction, but not until Celia has left the home. And so that becomes one of the family's central crises that they deal with, but they don't deal with it with Celia. And so it's this entire seminal chapter in this family's life that she's written out of because she wasn't around for it. And so because of that, she has a very different relationship to her parents and to her family than Jeremy does. Um, 
perhaps because the experience with Celia helped them learn something or perhaps because they were repeating the mistake with Jeremy and then knew they had to make up for it. Jeremy and his parents are much closer and have a much tighter bond and connection than Celia does because she was away for that. There was a trial by fire that they went through that she did not experience. And um, I think as often with the case with siblings, if you have siblings of different temperaments, they're going to experience their parents very differently and have very different impressions of the house that they grew up in. Well, too, Celia is more distant from everybody, including Hawk, and that's one of the things that drives this novel is is Celia kind of coming into the world finally after 21 years. Yeah, she's she's distanced by her fear, her fear of herself, her fear of what she's capable of because she hurt someone very badly once. She was so horrified by that that she's now afraid of hurting anyone again. And so that fear is driving her to keep a distance, which is, in fact, a destructive thing, too. Like, you, <laughs> there's no way to actually, you know, be safe in this. You're going to hurt people. But um, the way you hurt them is perhaps different depending on, you know, the choices that you make. And so in confronting this capacity, she has a... A conversation with her brother that I think kind of helps her very much where her brother is saying, look, we all have capacities that terrify us, but we just have to acknowledge it and say, but today I'm going to choose not to indulge that capacity. Today I am going to choose to do something else. And so it's that choice making that I think Celia has her eyes open to that hopefully will make her be able to move forward. Uh, I love the uh, the expression you use in here that she had uh that life with Huck had impaired her family fluency <laughs> because that is such a great, I mean, in a, in a two words, family fluency, we know the whole deal. So it, Yeah. I mean, you know, every family has certain unwritten rules of what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed not to say in code words and code glances and code expressions. And when that is your life, you're very well versed. But then, you know, Huck actually talks about stuff. And so Celia gets used to actually talking about things that are bothering her and, you know, being confronted with things that are bothering someone else. And so she loses her ability to pick up on the super, super subtle, this raised eyebrow means that he actually doesn't want me to say this thing. And this gesture with the hand is asking me if I want another slice of bread. Like, it's just, there's this invisible, unspoken language that she's losing touch with. I love, too, about when she comes home that uh, she thinks each time she turned the key in the lock, it became her house again. And I think that's a very interesting way of how a simple action can, you know, literally unlock memories. Yeah, I mean, phys- physical action, if you've the action of unlocking a door, it's a door that you unlocked mostly when you were, if it's your house, your childhood home, when you were a child. So, I mean, there's muscle memory. The body has muscle memory, and muscles and those muscle memories are tied to memory and experience in the brain, like cerebral experience. And so the turning, the working of your fingers and the way they've worked 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 times in the past is perforce going to bring up what it meant when this is where you lived. I, I think that uh, what's interesting, too, is that the way, one of the things you do, you have fun with permutations in this book and, and different versions of the same events. We get uh, the central event. I, I I, I didn't really take count. Do you know how many versions of that we get? Well, there's Celia's version, and then there's in all of her friends' versions. There's Becky, mm-hmm. and there's Leanne's version, and there's Josie's version. And then there's the versions of the people who weren't there to witness it, but witness the after effects, which would be her brother and both of her parents, and then Mrs. Pearson. So nine? I wasn't keeping track. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere around the neighborhood of nine. Uh, when you were writing this book, I- I'm wondering, you know, 
with all the, the thoughts of, of memory and line, one of the things that makes this uh, such a powerful and you know suspenseful reading experience is the the link between language and memory. And I'm wondering that as readers, we have one kind of experience of that. And I'd like you to talk about your experience as a writer creating these false memories. And, you know, this is this book is one big whopping lie that you're telling us. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a truth in there, too. Uh-huh. I think you know, there, there is some truth to be had. Oh, it's quite a bit. But. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, what I like to say, which I firmly believe, is that writing and acting are very closely allied art forms. And for me to inhabit this book, I have to become each character in turn and actually see this world through their eyes and go through it and experience it. And so that's what I tried to do as fully as possible with each of these characters um, to just, you know, get away with it. Do you, it, does it take you a while to come back to this world or when you, after you write a book like this? It depends. Um, moods will often follow me out from writing. Like if I'm writing, if I'm writing a chapter on a particular day that's a very sad chapter, I'll end my writing day and I will still feel sad for a while. Um, or maybe just like an image that I was working with will stay in my mind for sure. But um, yeah, I try to. I'm a very, I'm very good at compartmentalization, um, which I necessarily you necessarily have to be, you know, as you age, especially when you become a parent, and so you have your parenting life and your working life, especially if you work home at home, which I do. Like, there's big walls that need to be erected to make sure you get things done. Have you started a new book yet? Um, I've started thinking about a new book. Um, the thing with me is I'm extremely monomaniacal as a writer. I don't have a laundry list of all the books that I want to write. When I have an idea, I throw my entire self into that idea and I block everything else out. So that means that when I finish, I am empty and I have to kind of wait for something else to happen, which usually for me involves a combination of reading and listening to music and going to museums and eavesdropping and doing manual labor and just other things that can get my associative brain working. So I've got a couple very, very embryonic things that I might be ready to start exploring, but it's still pretty early days for me. What sort of books do you read both while you're writing and in between novels? It depends. Um, I always, always read, but when I am writing, I am careful. I curate what I read very carefully. Um, The three authors that I read pretty much all of as I was writing this book were Graham Greene, Ishiguro, and McEwen. Um, And I already talked a little bit about McEwen and Ishiguro. Graham Greene I was reading because of the way he's able to inhabit moral gray zones. Mm -hmm. Um, He just, that that middle where there's not quite a right or quite a wrong answer was very much, I was interested in exploring because there's, you know, morality here that's kind of all over the place. And so I read them extensively. Um, I avoid books of similar topics to a book that I might be writing at the time. I avoid them entirely because I might get too depressed because like, wait, someone else has written this. I shouldn't bother. Or it just might hamper my own ideas. Um, When I was working on my second book, which was set in 1918, I wouldn't read anything contemporary because whatever I read tends to infect or inflect my writing voice. And I wanted that particular book to have a timeless writing voice and not a contemporary feeling voice. So that also happens. When I'm in between books is one of the few times that I might actually read nonfiction. Um, I'm a fiction junkie. But when I become interested in an idea, I might read a little bit of nonfiction as research. I've been speaking with Myla Goldberg. Her new novel is The False Friend. Thank you for joining me, Myla. Oh, thanks for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.